Welcome to the London Lyceum, where we try to encourage listeners, especially our Baptist listeners, to think deeply and clearly. Think about their faith, think about their church, think about their life, and think about God. We're analytic, Baptist, and confessional. Thanks for tuning in, and enjoy the episode. Welcome once again to the LNL podcast. I feel very special introducing it each time now that I'm a professional podcaster. I am your co-host, Jordan Stefaniak. We're not getting paid for this, so we're not professionals. But... <laughs> I really feel like when I talk that way that I'm almost like sitting by a fire with you know some sort of cool drink with a cigar or something. I don't know. Cigar is probably not what I'm thinking of, but... I don't know what I, you're thinking of. I don't know. Who are you? I'm Brandon, your co-host. Excellent. And we're here to discuss analytic theology today. We're very excited about that. Yeah, man. That's one of my passions. Uh, wasn't always a passion of mine, but it's definitely a passion now. And obviously what we're trying to do here is kind of give you a little bit of a synopsis, an overview of what that is, so that for future episodes, you can kind of have more of a grasp of what we're trying to do and the topics we're trying to address. Analytic theology is pretty hot right now. Um, would 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 you agree with that or no? Uh, well, I mean, I didn't know what it was until you know pretty recently. So, but I, well, I guess I did. But I was just thinking philosophical theology, which is basically analytic theology. Um, it's just, a, I guess, a sharper definition of it. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely gaining some steam. That's for sure. So, one of our goals in the podcast is to encourage clear thinking and precise thinking, which is like really at the heart of what this analytic theology enterprise is. So that's really why we're trying to use analytic theology is quite frankly, I think all analytic theology is trying to do is just be clear and honest. Yeah. Um, I know you just read this book by Tom McCall, uh, like an invitation to analytic theology. Yep. And he gives obviously a definition in there of what analytic theology is. Yeah. So he, he um, actually, before we get to the formal definition, um, he says, he says this, uh, analytic theology signifies a commitment to employ the conceptual tools of analytic philosophy where those tools might be helpful in the work of constructive Christian theology. So here you see that there's this connection between analytic philosophy and Christian theology. So what is analytic philosophy? Well, that's going to be using the, the tools of, of logic um, you know, to, to build a, um, a coherent and sound argument, um, you know, and rather than just using vague concepts. Yeah, that's good. I like that. And, you know, analytic philosophy, if you really want to get super historical, kind of like came on the scene 20th century-ish with some big name dudes, uh, Bertrand Russell, Wittgenstein, others, and logical positivism, which if you're familiar with that history, you generally you think those are bad things. And yet uh, we're doing analytic philosophy, analytic theology. Why, why is that? Well, it's fundamentally because it's not necessarily the content of what those guys thought, but the way they were thinking that we want to model. Mm -hmm. Clear, precise, honest thinking, saying up front, these are the objections. These are the costs to my view. So instead of walking around saying there are zero costs to my view um, and you're really dumb if you don't believe me, we're honest in saying, yes, if you become say a Calvinist, for instance, you're going to have this problem and this problem and this problem. And yeah, you may think that they're really not that big of a deal, but those are the costs of that view and being honest and upfront about it. Yeah. 
So that's kind of part and parcel of what we're trying to do with this analytic idea. Yeah. So the, the definition here that, that, um, McCall gives is actually the definition. Um, he's quoting William J. Abraham here, but he says analytic theology can be usefully defined as follows. It is systematic theology attuned to the skills, resources, and virtues of analytic philosophy. A lot of that we just covered already, but you know, he basically says here it's systematic theology. It's, um, you know, systematic theology done in a, um, a clear way that a better um, way, a better way, because, <laughs> you know, it, it takes into account certain presuppositions uh, that are brought to the table, certain maybe unforeseen implications of a particular view. Um, you know, a lot of things, uh, you know, just kind of go assumed when a, a theologian is given an argument. But, you know, those hidden assumptions between this premise and the next premise get brought out, you know, once you examine things a little more closely. Um, so that's an, another way that uh, the tools of analytic philosophy can be used to to better uh, systematic theology. That's awesome. And, you know, I convince people all the time why analytic philosophy is useful for all of life. Uh, I've convinced my coworkers of it. I've convinced others of it because I think it really does help mold analytical thinking and being clear and understanding what you're thinking and talking about. So I think it's super beneficial, particularly for theology. So analytic theology is just doing theology in a clear way. Uh, it can be distinguished somewhat from philosophy of religion. Philosophy of religion is basically analytic theology. It's just a smaller area of focus. So analytic theology, I would say, is more, I'm going to cover the whole body that's mm -hmm. in the biblical text and all the theological principles there. So it's going to talk about sin. It's going to talk about salvation. It's going to talk about a lot more than philosophy of religion, which is typically, I think, more identified with divine attributes, uh, problem of evil, things like that. Yeah. And I think too, you know, it's, it, as I was reading this book, it seems like, you know, analytic theology, and I could be wrong about this and I'm happy to be corrected, but analytic theology is, is more done from a, a Christian perspective. Like it's, you're, you're doing the theological mm -hmm. work rather than, you know, philosophy of religion, is sometimes done by, and oftentimes is done by unbelievers and even, even atheists, you know, they're trying to poke holes in um, theism. And, you know, so you get the, you know, the questions, you know, that about omnipotence and, and, you know, how can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it and all those kinds of, that's philosophy of religion, but, you know, analytic theology is more, you know, we're actually trying to unpack from a Christian perspective, you know, what are these Christian doctrines, you know, doctrines of the of the trinity doctrine of the the incarnation those kind of things and thinking about those uh in, in a more clear way so yeah and now before we move on with this i just want to even attack the objection that some might have of saying why are you even using philosophy to begin with so i'm gonna go to my one of my favorite biblical texts not well okay every text of the bible is your favorite right <laughs> but this used to be like one of my like catch all anytime anybody talked about philosophy i thought philosophy was dumb especially in my like cage stage calvinist days um where i thought anybody interested in philosophy is just trying to bring in free will smuggle it in somehow so norm geisler and all those guys those are philosophers the people who really care about the bible are theologians and to prove it uh colossians 2 8 tells it to me so colossians 2 8 says see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, obviously, I think it's pretty clear that that text is not outlawing philosophy. 
it, it, it seems to be outlawing a particular kind of philosophy. A bad is, philosophy. Right. One that does not submit to the Lordship of Christ, which is not what we're trying to do here. We are absolutely, since we're coming at this from a confessional uh, perspective, we absolutely are submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And we're not seeking to, you know, use philosophy to undermine Christian beliefs or or, any, or to twist them or um, to be sneaky or, or anything like that. The, the motive here is to do things uh, much more clearly and precisely. Um, yeah, so that, I, I don't think Colossians 2.8 is in any way um, arguing against, because at, 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 at some point you just have to admit that you can't escape doing philosophy anyway, because as soon as you start making, um, you know, moral judgments and you start making metaphysical claims and, and all those kinds of things, you're, you're doing philosophy, whether you call it philosophy or not. So that, you know, that's great. I mean, it, it, it brings you back to the idea that it's a lot of people have been talking about lately is um, a biblicist hermeneutic versus a more thick scriptural type hermeneutic and hermeneutic is just the way we interpret scripture. So, and biblicism is basically this perspective that says you can only essentially say whatever the biblical text says, and that's it. So you can't make entailments. You can't make claims, bigger claims about what uh, the Bible might mean or entail from what it, what it says. You have to be just whatever the word says, and, and and that's it, which I think is unsustainable. You're going to have to give up a huge amounts of theological claims when you do that, huge amounts of orthodox claims, huge amounts of evangelical claims. You can't claim more than half of what you do if you go to biblicist hermeneutic. Right. So you need philosophy, you need history, you need these other things, and you're going to use them whether you think you are or not, mm-hmm. it's in it, the biblicist hermeneutic is actually impossible. Even if you wanted it, you couldn't do it because the second you try to use it, you're going to be doing phil- philosophy. Yep. So I think Colossians 2 8 is talking about bad philosophy. And I promise you, there are just as many theologians doing bad theology as there are philosophers who are doing bad theology. Yep. They don't, philosophers do not have the market on bad theology. I promise you that I, you can, you can read all sorts of bad theology from theologians who are supposed to be the bastions or new Testament, gosh, new Testament guys, these unbridled, unconstrained, unconfessional kidding (laughs) kidding for the most part. But honestly, you know, these new Testament old Testament guys who have no, um, guardrails for what they're encountering in the text. I mean, I, I love them. I, I, I was in the new Testament track for a long time, but you need philosophy. Well, let's just back up for a second because we, you asked me earlier what, you know, to talk about, and I gave a couple sentences on what analytic philosophy is, but just even more fundamental than that, what what is philosophy? Just give us like a, a, a short definition of philosophy in general. I, I mean, you could use the, it's the love of wisdom, which is what it is mm-hmm. uh, most fundamentally. Um, other Besides that, I would just say it's, you know, it's doing clear analytical thinking yeah. to some extent. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I've heard, I can't remember where I read this, but, um, and I mean, this isn't something super profound, but you know, that philosophy is, is basically the attempt to answer life's most, you know, ultimate questions. And, you know, so historically, you know, philosophy has been, um, metaphysics, epistemology and, and ethics. And now some of those, especially ethics has kind of become its own branch by now, but, um, so those are the three, I guess, branches of um, 
of philosophy. But, um, you know, it's something that I think we all do. I don't think I know we all do it. It's just a matter of if we're going to be um, transparent about, you know, what our theolo- I mean, our phil- philosophical convictions are. Um, and a lot of people just uh, aren't willing to do that. So. Yeah, transparent or good at it. And those branches you mentioned, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, I think everybody, most people know what ethics means. Epistemology is just the study of how, how do we know stuff. And metaphysics is more the study of reality. So that could be anything from what are you as a human person to uh, what are the divine attributes, all metaphysical questions to, you know, what is this table made of? Right. Um, and the Bible, anytime you read the Bible, you're doing metaphysics, you're doing epistemology, you're doing ethics. So you're doing philosophy every time you read the Bible, whether, whether you, you want to or not, you are. And that's why I think it's important to be honest about it and to be clear about it, which is what analytic theology is supposed to be doing. When we do theology, we want to be clear, honest, precise, uh, we want to lay out, here is my claim. I'm not going to vaguely hide my claim somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell a story and hope that you figure it out. I'm going to tell you, this is my claim, and I'm going to defend it in this way. So that's what we want to do, essentially, in this. Um, so I mentioned earlier uh, that you know, some uh, quite a bit of, of analytic theology has been done um, related to um, the Trinity um, and the Incarnation. But what are, what do you think are some other areas that have been probably the most um, the topics that have been written on the most um, by analytic theologians? I mean, I'm thinking oh maybe, yeah, divine attributes definitely. Yeah, that's been uh, providence would be another. Yeah, providence. Um, those are clear clear ones. I think incarnation has been done a good amount. Um, I mean, honestly, when I'm saying a good amount has been touched on that, that's not like. Well, a good amount in relation to yeah, other Christian doctrines. Yeah, exactly. So it's still somewhat in its infancy stage. So it kind of began with Alvin Plantiga, Nick Wolterstorff, and a couple of those other philosophers. And it's so, I mean, you know, Al, Al, Alvin Plantiga and Nick Wolterstorff are still alive. So it's still relatively new in its method and mode. It's not that people before it didn't do it. I mean, you read Thomas Aquinas and yeah. it's very clearly he's an analytic theologian. You read uh, someone like Anselm, very clear. He he would be categorized, I think, as an analytic. If you bring him to today, he would do analytic theology. Yeah. Um, I think. I mean, even somebody like Bavink. I mean, I haven't read. I mean, I, I'm yeah. I'm still in volume one, like you know, seventy five pages in. But I mean, I, when I first really started, to, when I was reading this McCall book, and I was really starting to understand, like, well, what you know, what is analytic theology i got to thinking well i mean this is it feels like exactly what i was reading when i was reading bavink you know i mean because he he is very precise yeah and he writes that you know scholastic theology especially reformed orthodox theology you know francis turretin Mm -hmm. i think is a great example yeah uh you know here's my point here are the objections here's why they fail yeah and here's here's do we agree with this yes or no maybe and here let me explain it i think i mean those are all great examples you know scholastic um, scholasticism, which by the way, is a method of doing theology, which is basically analytic theology, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people use that as some sort of slur. If you're like in theological circles, scholasticism is bad, dead, cold, dry, arid. No, it's precise, clear, and helpful. Mm-hmm. And it could have varying amounts of orthodoxy under that banner. 
because it's more of a method than it is the content of the method. So there's plenty of analytic theologians that I think that's dumb. I disagree with you. Well, and that was another point that that McCall made in the book, and I, I don't have the page marked here, but he was he was saying how how you know um, how broad it is, you know, from you have conservative evangelicals, you have Roman Catholics, you have more liberal Protestants. I mean, you have a a, a wide range of of perspectives that are all doing analytic theology. So it's again as as Jordan just said, it's not so much at all about the content. It's the way you deliver the content and the way you defend it. Which I think is very exciting because I don't really know of any um, confessional Baptist doing analytic theology at a high level. Maybe James Dolzel would be in, in that category. I yeah. think he'd probably be cool us putting him in, the, in that bucket. But I think besides him, no one's doing that. Yeah. Um, and we need more representatives. So that's partly what I hope to do, uh, you know, and it's, it's the years come is to defend and promote uh, confessional Baptist thought through that venue. But I think to your, to, to that point, we were just talking about the, the breadth of analytic theology, the breadth of conclusions. That's been kind of one of the objections to analytic theology, especially from conservatives. So I saw someone, uh, someone on Twitter, I think it was Luke Stamps mentioned something, just a comment about how he's noticed how it seems generally among analytic theologians, they're just not very orthodox and they seem to be pretty speculative at times. Now I think he did give a pat on the bat to Timothy Paul uh, at the same time, basically saying if all of it's like this, then I'm on board. But I think his kind of experience with analytic theology is probably common to those who at least are more exposed to this, those of our audience who know what analytic theology is and could name a couple, probably have this objection saying, from what I've seen, it's just not orthodox. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, I think somebody who, I don't know if we've even mentioned him yet, but Oliver Crisp, um, yeah. you know, he, in his book, uh, is it Divinity and Humanity? Is that yeah. The name of it? Yeah. So he, I mean, he, awesome makes, book. he makes the point over and over in that book, but especially in the beginning that he is seeking to defend the Orthodox understanding of the person of Christ. And, you know, so it, it, the idea that, you know, analytic theology is somehow um, outside of Orthodoxy or that it's, you know, just bad news from the start, I think is um, wrong. I mean, that does, I mean, there are to be sure analytic theologians who are outside of Orthodoxy, but that doesn't mean that, um, the, the enterprise itself is somehow tainted or, or useless. Yeah. Just because someone abuses it doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. I mean, just because there are people who use the name Christian and uh, are prosperity gospel pro- propagators, that doesn't mean that I don't want to be a Christian. Right. Just cause I see that TD Jake says he's a Christian and, and I see what he teaches and thinks that doesn't mean I just give up on Christianity. Um, so what, what do you think are, and this is switching gears a little bit, sure. but what are, we mentioned some places that have been some areas that have, that have been written on, but what are some areas that you think um, should be um, written on more by analytic theologians? Oh, like, I mean, specifically, I, I'm thinking about um, ecclesiology. Yes, is one. that's exactly the one that I would think of as ecclesiology. Yeah. That needs help. That needs work. That needs love, especially from an analytic theological perspective. And besides ecclesiology, I mean, you know, the doctrine of God, Christology, those things have been beaten up and not beaten up in a bad way, but like that's where people have really gone after, which is great. And I've, I I love those areas, but 
I think maybe anthropology is another area that could yeah. be engaged. There's, there's been some done on, um, I know there's several chapters in one of Ray's philosophical theology volumes um, that are on um, like theories of, of inspiration. Oh yeah, but I think uh, that's true. But that... I haven't, I mean, again, and I don't, I don't sit around reading a ton of analytic theology, but I, I don't think there's been as much done on that. That's, uh, and then that's a good point. I think, you know, inerrancy, that doctrine is one that is, you know, if you're an evangelical, you feel like you have to believe it, but you're not really sure why a hundred percent clearly. Uh, and if you're not an evangelical, you think it's this terrible, you know, power move to control people. Well, in inerrancy itself, you know, it rests on basically an argument. I mean, yeah. because it, it's not, you know, something that's just floating around out there on its own. It rests on what we believe about the nature of God himself. And, and so and it's not, you have to do analytic theology if you're going to make an argument for inerrancy. I mean, yeah. I think it can be done and has been done, but that again, is just analytic theology. It's yeah. just, uh, instead of just throwing it out there and assuming, you know, that, well, this is just, you know, straightforward or whatever we have to make that argument from what we believe about god and what we we believe about the scriptures and then from those two things we get the doctrine of inerrancy yeah and that reminds me about how confessional analytic theology really is so westminster confession says that you believe anything necessarily contained in scripture and anything that you can deduce by good and necessary consequence and i believe the second london confession agrees with that it changes the wording a little bit but Substantially, it's the same. That's what analytic theology is doing to, to a large extent is just making conclusions based on good and necessary consequence. Mm -hmm. So we know the scripture text claims this. Based upon this claim, these other things must be true. I don't see why anyone would disagree with that. I know there's probably listeners out there saying, yeah, I, I'm not convinced of analytic theology, but honestly... I don't know what else to tell them other than it's in your confession. If, if you're confessional in, in some sense and you are doing it, whether you think you are or not. I think, I think part of the, the, the mindset behind people who push back against, you know, this kind of thing is, and I, I'm going to use the, the word fundamentalist, but I mean it in not the historical, you know, 1920s sense of the word, but I mean it in, you know, what we think of when we think fundamentalist now and that mindset, um, is I think part of the reason that, that some people um, push back against analytic theology is because they think, oh, well, you know, it's it, maybe it just goes back to the Billis's hermeneutic. I don't know that, you know, we just, it's, it's um, the Bible alone. And of course, you know, I absolutely believe that scripture alone is you know, the sole infallible um, standard of, of everything um, that we do as, as Christians, um, everything that's related to our faith, everything that's related to um, the church. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other, um, things that we use just all we're doing is saying that scripture is the only infallible um, thing that we use. Um, but that doesn't mean philosophy is somehow useless or it's somehow evil, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, another objection that I read the other day from an article by a guy named, I'm going to butcher how to pronounce this, but I'm going to do my best. Mateen Westerholm. I have no idea. Don't know him. But he says against analytic theology, that basically there's this skepticism in claiming that analytic theology indulges the illusion that it has purged itself of unexamined presuppositions. So basically what he, what he's arguing is he thinks analytic theologians somehow forget that they have presuppositions 
They think when they're doing arguments that they are aware of all their presuppositions and they're able to move them all and be completely unbiased in their argumentation. And I don't think that's true. I think that's part of the point of analytic theology. You put it down and say, examine this. And if I do have hidden presuppositions, bring them to my attention so I can address that. And that's exactly what you're doing when you read someone else's theology, that you're bringing out you're bringing out their presuppositions. You're bringing out implications that they may not see come about by this position that they've taken. I don't. I don't think that it's somehow just because you're you're doing analytic theology that you're claiming to have whatever. I don't know the phrase he used, but you've you've left your presuppositions behind. I mean, it would be foolish to to say that you don't have presuppositions. I mean, that's, that's I think that the part of the start. point is simply to put them on the table and right. say that's why I'm making this argument yeah. and being clear. Uh, another maybe objection is it's, it's too abstract. And you know what? I think there might be a tendency in analytic theology to get too abstract, but there's also the reality that I think of different texts in the new Testament, even that seem pretty abstract where, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, I think, no, it was the Sadducees only who came to Jesus and talked to him about the resurrection. You know, whose wife will this be, uh, if, uh, she's been married to seven different people in the resurrection. And he basically says, you should have made the entailment from these things in the Old Testament that there is a resurrection and that you won't be married in the resurrection, but you'll be like the angels in heaven. That's pretty abstract reasoning. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus does some pretty abstract reasoning several times in his skirmishes. So I think he's doing some good analytic theology, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, And really, I mean, what it boils down to, all we're, all we're asking here is just for you know us to try to as best as we possibly can to engage our minds um, when exactly. we're thinking about God. And when we are talking about God, when we're writing about God, then, you know, I mean, the scriptures are very clear that we're to love God with all of our mind. And I think that's what, I mean, a, a, from a believing confessional perspective, you can love God with all your mind while doing analytic theology. Yeah, and really that's what those confessions originally were is almost analytic theology being clear and precise about what we believe and think. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, even if you're not, you know, trained and you've never heard analytic theology before, uh, this episode, I think the, the concept is very useful to you because there's probably been theological questions or conundrums that you've encountered in scripture or, or in the workplace or in family conversations where you thought, man, that's a good question. I have no idea what to think about that. Mm -hmm. And I think analytic theology is just a great tool to engage those questions, uh, to, you know, engage questions on where you you suddenly realize that you have no idea what the Trinity means. Mm-hmm. You suddenly realize that you have no idea how it is that, or what uh, do we mean by essence? What do we mean by person? Oh yeah. What you hear we, these big terms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are philosophical terms that were, that were used by early Christians to, to explain a biblical truth. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's any less biblical. It's just, it's just using categories that um, our minds can, can better understand. Yeah. So I, I for one love analytic theology. I'm excited to talk about topics in more of an analytic framework. Now we're not always going to be like, this is analytic theology. Every podcast episode. Don't, don't expect that. But I do expect when we engage topics to have more of that, I guess, framework for how we talk about it and think about it rather than something that's more narratival story centered. Yeah. And I mean, I, yeah, I think you're right. The the way we want to approach 
everything that we do on the show, we want it to kind of have this flavor to it. But also, I mean, we'll have some episodes where hopefully we'll be able to get some good guests on um, that are, you know, writing in this field and, you know, are, are really um, up on the latest developments and all that stuff um, that they can just, you know, we can just sit and learn from them for half an hour about, you know, what are, what are the newest um, things that are being written about um, from this perspective. So we'll definitely try to have some, some good guests on um, Lord willing uh, that will teach us more about uh, analytic theology. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty pumped about it. Yeah, man. Me too. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.